a couple of years ago, somebody told me there was some radical guy on the internet that had a homepage. As I got acquainted with him, I found out he didn't just have a homepage, but out of over five billion, with a B, homepages in the world, one month there was about 1,800 and some from the top for number of hits per day of all corporations, home sites and everything, including GM and Ford and, and well, the Southern Baptist Convention and all. I mean, Dr. Dobson's organization usually is around 55,000 from the top. And one month, his was something like 1,800 and some from the top, or 18,000 some from the top, wasn't it? 1,800 from the top. Can you imagine that? Of people hitting his website. One day he said on the computer, he said, I don't know how to get in it, but he says, do this, do that, do the other thing. He said, now scroll down. And I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled, and they just went by by the thousands. And he said, what date is I told him? He says, keep going. Thousands more. Keep going. Keep going. These are people hitting his homepage every day. And now he's linked it into me. Well, I found out he was just as radical as I was. And, uh, so we got together, and uh, a year ago last Thanksgiving, he came to Florida from, from up in uh, New Brunswick. And uh, we ordained him. And now he's building a, an Internet church. He's got people that don't have churches that get on the Internet, and they have a service on Sunday. And uh, he's teaching them. He's doing a lot more studying. Stephen's wife left him years ago. And uh, he didn't let it put him in a hole. He just said, I'm still going to love her, but I'm still going to keep on serving the Lord. And he goes day and night. I think the guy runs on, I think he's, he's that little bunny with a battery in it. He never seems to slow down. But he does have a lot of things that he wants to share with you. God's really put a lot of truth in his heart. And we want to give him a full, and now you're going to have an hour and three minutes. So you come, Brother Stephen. Let's welcome Stephen. Stephen. Will Cox. Yes, you you get the mic to find the truth about this, I went to God and he told me. Words are cheap. Let me put it to you in words that you can understand. I went to God and he told me. I opened the word and he showed me. And he told me and I understood. I ate the scroll, and it tasted good. I tried to find anybody alive that would stand with me. I lived in Calgary, Alberta, population just under a million people in the Bible Belt of Canada. I think I probably darkened the door of just about every denomination, and many of them, multiple churches, Anglican, Mennonite, Nazarene, which I have the background of. I'm a third-generation minister. All of my ancestors are Nazarene. As far back as we can go, the holiness movement is now down there somewhere. I couldn't find a single living person in the province of Alberta that agreed with me. I tried. I went to Edmonton, a city of about 700,000. I did the rounds there. I phoned my father. My father's been a pastor since he'd been a boy. He disagreed with me. I phoned, I, I phoned my college professors. I, I phoned a certain doctor of biblical languages, a Canadian Nazarene college that I had studied under. He disagreed with me. I really tried. I sought 
God and I, I, I know enough about the facts of life to know that if an individual thinks that they're right and everybody else knows they're wrong, then they're insane. I know that. I know that. You know that. However, I was on the internet and I typed in something like divorce and remarriage and a quote came up from an early church father. And that began a study. And I don't pretend to be an expert. I'm not a scholar on the early church fathers. I am an interested student. I have done some investigation. The fruit of these investigations we will go through today. I would like to thank in particular these particular websites here. These people here, particularly the first one, www.ccel.org, a number of people have spent years going into musty old archives and, and, and typing into a computer old manuscripts that they find in codexes and commentaries and they put them on the internet for students to see. Ten years ago, it would have been absolutely impossible for this information to be accessible. I guarantee you that if you went to cemetery <laughs> 25 years ago, you had some vague references to what the early church fathers taught on a number of subjects, including this. You would not have a lot of the information that we're going to be going through today. I want to thank you for attending. This is a difficult subject. We're going to be going through a lot of information. If you have any questions, ask me at the end or any time this week, and I'll try to answer them. But before we go any further, I want to introduce Cindy Van Orden. Would you stand up, Cindy, please? Cindy is my right-hand man. She's a director of Theological Foundations, as is some other people in here, and Cindy answers all the women that write in from all around the world, and, and, and I couldn't have done any of what I do, we couldn't do any of what we do if it wasn't for her and, and the help of her and her, her faithful husband. I'll try to do this subject some justice in the one hour that I have available. I confess that I am not an expert or a scholar on the, on the wider writings of the ancients. Don't ask me what Oregon thought of baptism. I don't know I don't care. I have, for the most part, taken an interest and I conducted the investigations. And, and what I have found of all the early church fathers from, from the Augustinian period and earlier, of all the manuscripts that have ever been written, and they have written over 30,000, on every discussion and every debate and every time that they spoke directly or were written or were written about, there is absolutely no disagreement on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So before we get started, let me tell you the last page of the book. We're right, and they're wrong. The rest of the church today, and people that are living in relationships contrary to the Word of God, as defined by the early church fathers, they are all wrong. If they are right, if, if they are right, then I'm wrong, you're wrong, and they're wrong. And if they're wrong, you can trust nothing about what's written in your scriptures because they brought your scriptures to you in trust. They were the ones that defined for their generation 
And for the millions of people that were alive on the earth in their day, they defined what Christianity means. They defined what it means to be saved and how to get saved and how to stay saved. They defined your basic theology that we understand today. They codified redemption. They franchised out the gospel. If they're wrong, we of all people are most foolish because we know nothing because we have a contaminated and a tainted word of God because it went through their lying lips. But if they be right, then we're right. And we have a church to turn. And if we don't turn it, we're going to be breaking trust with these men who gave their lives for what they teach. What did they teach? I would like to read a short statement by a man by the name of A. Cleveland Cox, Doctor of Divinity. He wrote this in 1854, I have amended it and edited it a bit just so that it wouldn't be the ten pages of which he wrote it down to one and a half. But he wanted to talk about the importance of the writings of the early church fathers that he had in that day. He says, The apostolic fathers and those associated with them, which with scripture supplies a succinct autobiography of the spouse of Christ for the first centuries. No Christian scholar has ever before possessed in faithful versions a supplement so essential to the right understanding of the New Testament itself. Those were times of heroism, not of words. An age not of writers, but of soldiers. Not of talkers, but of sufferers. Curiosity is baffled, but faith and love are fed by those scanty relics of primitive antiquity. Yet, may we well be grateful for what we have. These writings come down to us as the earliest response of converted peoples to the testimony of Jesus Christ. They are primary evidences of the canon and the credibility of the New Testament. Now, be warned. Disappointment may be the first emotion to the student for these disciples are inferior to their masters. They speak with voices of, infor, of infirm and fallible men, and not like those of New Testament writers, with the fiery tongues of the Holy Spirit. Yet the thoughtful and loving spirit soon learns exceeding value. For who does not close the records of the book of Acts where St. Luke stops writing, and we look at beyond with longing? to get at least a glimpse of the further history of the progress of the gospel. What of the church and its founders were falling asleep? Was the good shepherd always with his little flock, according to his promise? Was the blessed comforter felt in his presence amid the fires of persecution? Was the spirit of truth really able to guide the faithful into all truth and to keep them in the truth? If the cold-hearted and the critical find no charm, in the simple childlike faith of which they exhibit, ennobled though it be by heroic devotions to the Master, we need not marvel. Such would probably object, they teach me nothing. I do not relish their multiplied citations from scriptures. The answer is, if you are familiar with scripture, 
you owe it largely to these witnesses as to its canon and its spirit. And by their testimony, we detect today what is spurious and we identify what is real. It is nothing to find, is it nothing to find that your Bible is their Bible? That your faith, their faith, your Savior, their Savior, your God, their God? Let us reflect also that when copies of the entire scriptures were rare and costly and illegal, these citations were apples of gold and pictures of silver. We are taught by them and that they obeyed the gospel and the apostles. Their very mistakes enable us to attach a higher value to the superiority of inspired writers. Had they not listened to what the apostles had said, had they not been converted, they too would have yielded to the idolatry and to the lust and hate of their generation. They created the idea of the modern-day Christian family. They gave new and holy meanings to the name of wife and mother. They imparted ideas unknown before them and the dignity of man, and they infused an atmosphere of benevolence and love in a world that had beforehand known it not. Unquote. I'm talk about a man named Hermes. Um, not quite as famous as Billy Graham, but he probably was in his day. He lived in um, about from, 19, six, uh, from the year 60 to about 120. He was a slave. Hermes was sold into slavery and sent to Rome as a boy. He was later set free by his owner, a woman named Rhoda. He became known as one of the authoritative fathers of the church and an influential Christian writer noted for his detailed description of early Christianity. His surviving book, The Shepherd, was considered to be an inspired book of the Holy Bible until the 4th century A.D. To quote the translators, the, the shepherd of Hermas is in form an apocalypse. It consists of a series of revelations made to Hermas by the church who appears in the form of a woman, by the shepherd and by the angel of repentance and by the great angel who is in charge of Christians. Each revelation is accompanied by an explanation and from these it can be seen through the form of the book is apocalyptic and visionary, its object is practical and ethical, unquote. It was considered to be inspired scripture until about the year 600. Now I want you to understand, when Hermas wrote this, the Apostle John was still living. This is what he thought about the question of marriage and divorce, and this is what commonly was taught in the church. This is the angel talking. I charge you, said he, to guard your chastity and let no thought enter your heart of another man's wife or of fornication or of similar iniquities, for so by doing you this commit a great sin. But if you always remember your own wife, you will never sin. For if this thought enter your heart, then you will sin. And if in like manner you think other wicked thoughts, you commit sin. For this thought is greater sin than a servant of God. But if anyone commits his wicked deed, he works death for himself. Attend therefore and refrain from this thought. For where purity dwells, there is iniquity ought not to enter the heart of a righteous man. You said to him, I said to him, Sir, permit me to ask you a few questions. Say on, said he. And I said to him, Sir, 
if anyone has a wife who trusts in the Lord, and if he detects her in adultery, does the man sin if he continued to live with her? And he said to me, as long as he remains ignorant of her sin, the husband commits no transgression living with her. But if the husband know that his wife has gone astray, and if the woman does not repent, but persists in her fornication, and yet the husband continues to live with her, he also is guilty of her crime and a sharer in her adultery. And I said to him, What then, sir, is the husband to do if his wife continue in her vicious practices? And he said, The husband should put away his, her wife, uh, put her away, sorry, and remain by himself. But if he put his wife away and marry another, he also commits adultery. I said to him, What if the woman put away should repent and wish to return to her husband? Shall she not be taken back by her husband? And he said to me, Assuredly, if the husband do not take her back, he sins. And he brings a great sin upon himself, for he ought to take back the sinner who has repented. In this matter, man and woman are to be treated exactly in the same way. That's shepherd, the shepherd for 1 to 10. Hermas taught. One, if a wife persists in adulterous behavior, the innocent party may and perhaps should divorce in order to separate away from the sins of the offender. If a husband divorces his wife for such a reason, he must remain single and not remarry. If a wife repents of her offense, the husband must forgive her and receive her back as wife. If the husband does not forgive his repentant wife, he brings a great sin upon himself. Men and women are to act and be regarded exactly the same in this matter. Very clear. One man's opinion. Justin Martyr was one of the great early theologians and the apologists for the church. He had the distinction of presenting a defining explanation of defense of Christianity to Caesar and to the imperial Roman Senate. His apology for the Christians written to refute charges of sedition in Romans is a magnificent legal testimony to the power of early Christians to live holy and pleasing lives in an evil and corrupted society, just like today. Justin was beheaded for refusing to sacrifice the pagan gods. Tradition tells us that he read this in the imperial senate in front of the son of the emperor and that all the senators were present. And this is what the legal position on this subject of Christianity, on what Christianity, the legal position of marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the year 151. Justin Martyr taught, in regards to chastity, Jesus had this to say, if anyone look at lust at a woman, he has already before God committed adultery in his heart. And whoever marries a woman who has been divorced from another husband commits adultery. According to our teacher, just as they are sinners who contract a second marriage, even though it be in accord with human law, so also are they sinners who look with lustful desires at a woman. He repudiates not only the one who actually commits adultery, but even one who wishes to do so. For not only our actions are manifest of God, but even our thoughts. And that's in First Apology 15. By so doing, Justin Martyr taught to indulge in lust is to be guilty of adultery in the heart. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Whoever contracts a second marriage is sinning against God. God does not and Christians must not take into account human law when it is in violation of God's law. God judges motives and intentions, private thought and life and actions, and all is known and exposed before the God of which we have to do. Thank you, Justin. You feel very solid. You've probably both heard of the shepherd and Justin Martin, but have you ever heard of Clement of Alexandria? Probably not. Titus Flavius Clements, known as Clement of Alexandria, was a Greek theologian who served as head of the famous catechetical school of Alexandria. His writings were presented to make mature Christians to a more perfect knowledge of God and the pure moral character. His defense of the faith exhorted morals, kindness, and patience. He taught that the thoughts and the will of God in the scriptures exhorts, educates, and perfects the true Christian. Many scholars believe he founded the great Alexandrian school of theology. He is listed as a martyr for his faith, but we don't know, we don't know how, he, how he died. Clement taught that scripture counsels marriage, however, and never allows any release from the union is expressly contained in the law. You shall not divorce a wife except for the reason of fornication. And by the way, I looked behind that particular oldest manuscript, and the word for that, it is written in Greek as the original language in this manuscript, and it is parnia. And it is, in that particular case, the narrow, narrow definition of parnia, which is remarriage. And it regards as adultery the separation of a spouse while the one from whom a separation was made is still alive. Whoever takes a divorced woman as wife commits adultery. It says, for if anyone divorces his wife commits adultery, that is, he compels her to commit adultery. And does not, and, and not only does he that divorces her become the cause of this, but also he that takes the woman and gives her the opportunity of sinning, for if he did not take her, she would return to her husband. That's in Miscellaneous 2.23, 145 and 3. Very clear. This is what Clement taught. He said that the scriptures counsel Christians concerning marriage relationships, that the Bible has something to say on the subject. It says the marriage between a man and a woman is permanent and does not allow anyone to be released from the union. He taught that the only legitimate reason for divorce is fornication. Otherwise, separation is prohibited. A remarriage while a former spouse lives is living in the state of adultery, therefore expressly forbidden in Scripture. A man who divorces his wife violates and corrupts her, for if she remarries for any reason except for the death of her husband, she becomes an adulteress. The one who marries a divorced spouse sins not only by committing adultery with another spouse, but also sins by acting as an impediment to reconciliation of the original marriage. And if the divorced spouse had remained single, she would have, if possible, remained returned to the first union. Now we're going to talk about Oregon. It's one of my favorites. Um, Oregon was a fanatic for Jesus Christ. The, his contemporaries of the day were all terrified of Oregon. He had an intelligence that was unsurpassed. Early church history says that he had up to 24 scribes at any one time in a large circle outdoors. 
and each scribe was writing a different book. And Oregon would go from one to the other and give them the next paragraph to write. And they were all being written on different subjects. Talk about multitasking, it gives a whole new meaning to it. If you ever read what he wrote on the Trinity, you have to put your seatbelt on because he takes you there. You can see where the Father is light and the Son is the brilliance of the light. I mean, his whole idea is the way that he could explain things. He had an intelligence unbelievable, certainly probably matched Saul of Tarsus. Oregon is known as the most accomplished and significant theologian of the early church. As a student and exegete of the Old and New Testaments, he influenced the critical thinking of the church in his day to such an extent that his works still have major impact on doctrine and practice. It is estimated that he wrote 5,000 major theses, books, and epistles in his lifetime of service. Much of his work concentrated on refuting dangerous errors and heresies. Oregon was in prison during the reign of the Emperor Decius. He was tortured to such an extent that he died from his ordeal after being released. Oregon taught. For confessedly, he who puts away his wife when she is not a fornicator makes her an adulteress. So far as it lies with him, for if, when the husband is living, she shall be called an adulteress if she be joined to another man, and when by putting her away he gives to her the excuse of a second marriage, very plainly in this way he makes her an adulteress. But a woman is an adulteress even though she seems to be married to a man while the former husband is still living, so also the man who seems to marry her who has been put away does not so much marry her as commit adultery with her according to the declaration of her Savior. Is that understandable? Let's do this again. But as a woman, if a, as a, but as a woman is an adulteress, even though she seems to be married to a man while the former husband is still living, so also the man who seems to marry who has been divorced does not so much marry her as commit adultery with her according to the declaration of her Savior. Is there anything about that that the church today should not understand? That's from Commentaries on Matthew 14, section 24. Oregon taught, A man that divorces his wife who is not guilty of fornication causes her to become an adulteress if she remarries, and the man that marries her is an adulterer. The marriage covenant between a man and a woman is permanent as long as both husband and wife are alive. No matter what the legal circumstances may appear to be to the contrary, a remarriage relationship when either or both parties are divorced while a former's partner lives is what? Adultery. The intimate relations between the man and the woman remarried while a former spouse still lives are adulterous and considered sin. A remarriage is not an actual marriage whatsoever, but disguised camouflaged adultery. Basil the Great. Basil was born in Caesarea, educated in Athens. He is considered one of the great fathers and doctors of the church. His writings include On the Holy Spirit. My soul, if you ever want about a two-week-long read, read it, and you'll be on your face before God. And Moralia. He was asked by the church to help defend against the Arian heretical doctrines and subsequently became bishop of Caesarea in 370. Basil became Basil the Great simply because of his outstanding personal integrity, 
holiness and reputation, as well as his brilliance as a theologian and defender of the faith. Basil the Great said, The man who has deserted his wife and goes to another is himself an adulterer because he makes her commit adultery, and the woman who lives with him is an adulteress because she has caused another woman's husband to come over to her. The woman who, who lives with an adulterer is an adulteress the whole time. Now that's important, that last line. The woman who lives with an adulterer is an adulteress of the whole time, not a one-time act. The woman who has been abandoned by her husband ought in my judgment to remain as she is. The Lord said, if anyone leaves his wife saving for the cause of fornication, he causes her to commit adultery. Thus, by calling her adulteress, he excludes her from the intercourse with another man. For how can the man being guilty as having caused adultery and the woman go without blame when she is called an adulteress by the Lord for having intercourse with another man? A man who marries another man's wife who has been taken away from him will be charged with adultery. And that stays in sex communication. He said, a man that deserts his wife and she marries another makes his wife commit adultery. It's a paraphrase of Matthew 5, 32. A woman who a divorced man takes is guilty of adultery. The second woman is guilty of seducing another woman's husband. An adulterous relationship is continuous with adultery, not a one-time sin. An abandoned wife is to remain as she is. An abandoned woman that takes another man to husband and have intercourse with that man is guilty of adultery. If a man is guilty, so is the woman. It is a serious offense for a man to take another man's wife. It is a serious offense for a woman to take another woman's husband. The church must charge a person with adultery who is in possession of another person's Plain enough? Let's go to Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose is known as one of the four original doctors of the church. Born in Germany, educated in Rome, he was asked to be Bishop of Milan because of his extraordinary kindness and wisdom, earning him the love and esteem of his people. History records that he publicly confronted and rebuked and led repentance Caesar Theodius over the slaughtering of thousands of Thessalonians. Take a side ramble for a minute. He walked with his secretary. He had a cane. He walked with his cane over to the imperial palace of the emperor. He had just received word that the emperor had slaughtered thousands of people in Thessalonica. He walked in. The Praetorian guard tried to stop him, and he said, Shoo! And they stood aside. And he walked in, and he leveled his cane right at Caesar on the throne, and he called upon him to repent. And he did and he became a Christian and gave his heart to Christ. He wrote, he ceases this on Christian morality and personal holiness, warning against adopting the world's standards. He was by all accounts a most extraordinary man, equal to his time. He was influential in bringing Augustine into a saving personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he personally received him into the body of Christ. Ambrose of Milan wrote, 
But what shall I say about chastity when only one and no second union is allowed? As regards marriage, the law is not to marry again nor to seek union with another wife. It seems strange to many why impediment should be caused by a second marriage entered on before baptism so as to pervert election to the clerical office and to the reception of the gift of ordination, seeing that even crimes are not wont to stand in the way if they have been put away for a sacrament of baptism. That's stiff language. Let me tell you what it says. It seems really strange to me that somebody can be married before they get saved. And then they come, and they have divorced, and they want to be thought of as a single, and they want to be ordained into the church. He says, seems strange to me, because when you get saved, it's not the law that is washed away, it's the sin. Interesting concept. But we must learn that in baptism, sin can be forgiven, but law cannot be abolished. In the case of marriage, there is no sin, but there is a law. Whatever sin there is can be put away. Whatever law cannot be laid aside in marriage just because they got saved because they joined the church, because they got baptized. That's on duties of the clergy, 1, 257. He went on to say, and what else did John, speaking of John the Baptist, and what else did John have in mind but what is virtuous so that he could not endure a wicked union even in the king's case, saying it is not lawful for thee to have her to wife? He could have been silent had he not thought it unseemingly for himself not to speak the truth for fear of death or to make a prophetic office yield to the king or to indulge in flattery. He knew well what he would die. He was against the king, but he preferred virtue to safety. Yet what is more expedient than the suffering which brought glory to the saint? That's on the duties of the clergy, 389. No one is permitted to know a woman other than his wife. The marital right is given you for this reason, lest you fall in a snare and sin with a strange woman. If you are bound to a wife... Do not seek a divorce, for you are not permitted while your wife lives to marry another. Anything vague about that? Do you understand that? That's in Abraham 1, 57 and 59. How about, you dismiss your wife, therefore, as if by right, and without being charged with wrongdoing, and you suppose it is proper for you to do so because no human law forbids it, but divine law forbids it. Anyone who obeys man should stand in awe of God. Hear the word of the Lord, which even those who propose our laws must obey. And listen, government of Canada, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's his commentary on the book of Luke, section 8, 5. Let's talk about Ambrose of Milan some more. He said, one, Sex is a marital right that is limited to one's own husband or wife. Legitimate sexual relations with one's spouse protects from sexual sin. Extramarital sex is sin and a snare that will catch and kill. It is forbidden by God for a spouse to divorce and to remarry another. Ambrose interprets Paul's writings in Corinthians to mean that it is forbidden for a man or a woman to remarry while a former or earlier spouse lives. It is a wrong understanding to believe that it is simply one's right to divorce a spouse. Even though human law may permit such a thing, God strictly forbids it. Anyone who follows human customs and laws regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage, instead of divine laws, should stand in fearful awe of God. 
Wouldn't it be nice if people had a fearful awe of God? My level of expectation sometimes, and I don't want to confess with my mouth, I sometimes just hope that they just stop having a level of contempt. Somewhere in between is, is dignity and respect. But we should stand in fearful awe of God if we are opposed to what God so very, very clearly said and unanimously told his people. All lawmakers in and out of the church be warned to their peril to hear and obey the word of the Lord. Jesus' command is reaffirmed. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Conversion to Christianity forgives past sin but does not nullify or set aside God's laws. Understandable? Jerome was another great father and doctor of the early church, whose most important work was the translation of the Bible, translation of the Bible into Latin, which is the Vulgate. He wrote works defending the church from Jovian, Vigilantius, and Pelagianism heresies that were threatening the gospel of Jesus Christ at the time. Now, praise God. From the time that I wrote Restoration of Christian Marriage five years ago, until I went looking back at the water well, trying to get more information a few days ago or weeks ago, trying to put this together for this conference. Meantime, there's been some manuscript evidence come forward out of Syria. And we have a copy of a letter from Jerome that may be second or third hand. We, we don't really want to think it's first hand. It would be nice. It might be. But it's very, very ancient. It's older than most of the manuscripts. It's probably around 1,600 years old. Jerome wrote this in 396. I'm going to give this to you in context. This is a letter. We're going to read it from top to bottom. In explaining the testimony of the apostle, the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife, we have subjoined the following. The entire question relates to those who are living in wedlock, whether it is lawful for them to put away their wives, a thing which the Lord has forbidden in the gospel. Following is the declaration of the Lord. The apostle teaches that a wife must not be put away for fornication, saving for fornication, rather, and that if she has been put away, she cannot during the lifetime of her husband marry another, or at any rate, that she ought, if possible, to be reconciled to her husband. In another verse, he speaks to the same effect. The wife is bound as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. She is at liberty to be married to whom she will, but only in the Lord. Dr. Webb just gave those verses in Corinthians. I find joined to your letter of inquiries a short paper containing the following words. Ask him... And he puts it in brackets, that's, his, that's, that's the translators, that's Jerome talking about himself, that is me. Whether a woman who has left her husband on the grounds that he is an adulterer and sodomite and has found herself compelled to take another man may in the lifetime of him who she has first left be in communion with the church without doing penance for her fault. I'm just going to stop there. Doing penance in that day is not what the Catholic Church teaches today. It wasn't going as saying 10 Our Fathers and 15 Hail Marys. Penance was standing up in front of the church, confessing your sin, and asking the church to forgive you for that sin, 
and falling on your knees and asking God, and if the church felt that your, genuine, your repentance was genuine, then you were forgiven it and you were restored. If not, you still have some time to go around the mountain again. That's what it meant in that day. As I read the case put, talking about this question, I recall the verse, they make excuses for their sins. We are all indulgent to our own faults. And what our own will leads us to do, we attribute to a necessity of nature. It is as though a young man were to say, I am overborne by my body, the glow of nature kindles my passions, the structure of my frame and its reproductive organs call for sexual intercourse. Or again, a murderer might say, I was in want. I stood in need of food. I had nothing to cover me. If I shed the blood of another, it was to save myself from dying of cold and hunger. Or, we'll just put it in modern words, hey, God wants me to be happy. I have sexual needs. I have deeply felt desires. If God didn't want me to, to, to restrict them, he wouldn't have given to me in the first place. Not my fault. Tell the sister, therefore, who thus inquires of me concerning her condition, not my sentence, but that of the apostle. Quote, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, for the husband which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. Say, Wilcox, you're not supposed to quote what that says in Romans because he's talking about grace and salvation. It just happens to be that he used an illustration of marriage. If that is the case, then Jerome, who was recognized as one of the early fathers of the church and a theologian second to none, disagrees with you. He thinks that it applied. And in another place, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, but only in the Lord. The apostle has thus cut away every plea and has clearly declared that if a woman marries again, while her husband is living, she is an adulteress. You must not speak to me of the violence of a ravisher, a mother's pleading, a father's bidding, the influence of relatives, the insolence of the intrigues of servants, or household losses. A husband may be an adulterer or a sodomite. He may be stained with every crime and may have been left by his wife because of his sins. Yet, he is still her husband, still, and as long as he lives... She may not marry another. Is there anything unclear? Praise God. The apostle does not promulgate this decree on his own authority, but on that of Christ who speaks in him. For he has followed the words of Christ in the gospel. Whoever, whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication, cause her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Mark what he says. Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Whether she has been put away her husband or her husband her, the man who marries her is still an adulterer. I have not been able quite to determine what it is that she means by the words has found herself compelled to marry again. Isn't this rich? 
You t is this resting this out of context? This is in context. This is today. I'll start again. I've not been quite able to determine what it is that she means by the words, has found herself compelled to marry again. What is this compulsion of which she speaks? Was she overborne by a crowd and ravished against her will? If so, why has she not thus victimized, subsequently put away her ravisher? Let her read the book of Moses, and she will find that if violence is offered to a betrothed virgin in a city, and she does not cry out, she is punished as an adulteress. But if she is forced in the field, she is innocent of sin, and her ravisher alone is amenable to the laws. Therefore, if your sister, who, as she says, has been forced into a second union, wishes to receive the body of Christ and does not want to be counted as an adulteress, let her do penance. Again, you understand what penance meant in that day. So far as least from this time, she begins to repent to have no further intercourse with that second husband, who ought to be called not a husband, but an adulterer. If this seems hard for her, if she cannot leave one whom she has once loved and will not prefer the Lord to sensual pleasure, let her hear the declaration of the apostle. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And in another place, what communion has light with darkness, and what concourse have Christ with Belial? Jerome taught. The Lord has forbidden divorce and remarriage in the gospel. And he has. He has. Christians must stop making excuses for and trying to find justification for divorce and remarriage. None of it stands before God and must not be considered at all when applying the word of God in the church or in individual lives. A marriage is for life and no matter what a spouse turns out to be or how they may act or the sins that they commit, the covenant remains fully in effect. God does not divide the one flesh relationship. A spouse that is separated or divorced for any reason, no matter how provoked or how circumstances came to be as they are, is still bound to the marriage covenant and cannot be remarried to another as long as they both live. Augustine. Anybody here not have not heard of Augustine? Did you? Augustine is regarded as perhaps the single greatest church leader and theologian and preacher and teacher and convert to Christianity between the times of the apostles of Jesus Christ and the Reformation period and perhaps even to this day. His personal testimony of seeking and finding God after an early life of sin is as fresh and new today and is as transparently spirit-filled as it was then. Quick question, has anybody ever read Augustine's conversion testimony? It's wonderful. His place in the church among his peers can be compared to that of Paul amongst the apostles. He rigorously and effectively defended the faith from enemies on all sides. His writings are credited with influencing to an enormous extent the thinking of the great leaders of the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, modern-day evangelical Christianity, Calvinism, Arminianism, Mennonites, Pentecostals, Wesleyan, Nazarenes, Baptists. We all draw our roots directly through Augustine. 
He wasn't a Roman Catholic. He wasn't even close. Catholicism came about 150, 200 years later. This is what Augustine said. Our Lord, therefore, in order to confirm that principle that a wife should not lightly be put away, made the single exception of fornication, but enjoined that all other annoyances, if any such should happen to spring up, be borne with fortitude for the sake of conjugal fidelity and for the sake of chastity. He also calls that man an adulterer who should marry her that has been divorced by her husband. And the Apostle Paul shows the limit of the state of affairs, where he says it is to be observed as long as her husband liveth, but on the husband's death he gives permission to marry. For he himself also held by this rule, and therein brings forward not his own advice, as in the case of some of his admonitions, but a command by the Lord when he says, quote, And under the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, and, and if she departs, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. I believe that according to a similar rule, if he shall, if he shall put her away, he is to remain unmarried and be reconciled to his wife. That's from the commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, Harmony of the Gospels, Homilies of the Gospels. Seeing that the compact of marriage is done away, and with and by an intervening... To, oh, seeing that the compact of marriage is not done away with by intervening divorce. Now, there's an interesting statement. So that they continue as wedded persons one to another, even after separation, and commit adultery with those with whom they be joined, even after their own divorce, either the woman with the man or the man with the woman. Does that directly address the question of today on second marriages? Directly. Neither can it rightly be held that a husband who dismisses his wife because of fornication and marries another does not commit adultery. For there is also adultery on the part of those who, after the repudiation of their former wives, because of fornication, marry others. No one is so unreasonable to say that a man who marries a woman whose husband has dismissed her because of fornication is not an adulterer, while maintaining that a man who marries a woman dismissed without the ground of fornication is an adulterer. Both of these men are guilty of adultery. That's an adulterous marriage, just one, nine, and nine. A spouse, therefore, is lawfully dismissed for cause of adultery. And by the laws, but the laws of chastity remains. That is why a man is guilty of adultery if he marries a woman who has been dismissed even for this very cause of adultery. That's I bet two, four, four. A woman begins to be the wife of no later husband unless she ceased to be the wife of a former one. She will cease to be the wife of a former one, however, if that husband should die, not if he commit adultery. I bid 243. Therefore, to serve two or more men so as to pass over from a living husband into marriage with another was neither lawful then in the Old Testament, nor is it lawful now, nor will it ever be lawful. To apostatize from the one God, to go into adulterous superstitions of another, is ever an evil. I need to repeat that. 
Therefore, to serve two or more men, for a woman to serve two or more men, to pass from a living husband into marriage with another husband, was neither lawful in the Old Testament, according to Augustine, nor is it lawful now, nor will it ever be. And he says, to apostatize from this belief is to turn against the one God and to go into adulterous superstitions of another God. And that is to do evil. That's on the spirit, doctrinal treatises, moral treatises. I believe it's section 15. Brothers and sisters, the understanding of our Christian... I'm going to skip this in the interest of time. I just took a look. The understanding of our Christian forefathers is really different from the present generation in this matter. We're not both right, but one of us are wrong. These doctrines taught by the early authoritative leaders of Christianity are in serious disagreements with those commonly taught and modeled today. Forgotten are the millions of Christians for over hundreds of years that lived and died by these very same laws. This gospel being taught today in much of the church, insofar as the moral standards required by Christianity concerned, is diametrically opposed to that taught by Jesus Christ and his early church. In its place, the modern church is presenting a different, powerless version of a Christianity that denies the essential truth of God, that does not recognize the complete transforming power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate degenerate man. The problem is, is that we don't believe that Jesus Christ can regenerate degenerate men. We believe that he can be camouflaged and he can be relabeled, but we don't believe that hearts can change. We don't believe that people are saved. We believe they're just rescued. We don't believe in holiness. We just believe in religion. And according to Augustine, it's the religion and the evil superstition of another God. The summary of the early church teachings. Let's just wind this up. One, if a spouse persists in adulterous behavior and there is no other alternative, the marriage relationship can be terminated by the innocent party. And that doesn't mean legally, that just means that if he's beating you up every night, sister, you don't have to stay. Run. And tell the church, let us deal with them. Spouses that are divorced for any reason must remain celibate and single as long as both spouses live. Remarriage is expressly prohibited. To indulge in lust with the mind is to be guilty of adultery of the heart. Whoever marries a divorced person commits adultery. Whoever contracts a second marriage, whether a Christian or not, while a former spouse lives, is sinning against God. God does not, and the church must not, take into account human law when it is in violation of God's law. God judges motives and intentions, private thought life and actions. 
the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is permanent as long as both husband and wife are alive. It is a serious offense against God to take another person's spouse. The church must charge all persons who are in possession of another living person's former husband or wife with adultery. Sexual relations are a marital right that is limited to one's own husband or wife. Sexual relations with one's legitimate spouse protects from sexual sin. Marriage and sexual relations with a remarried spouse while a former spouse lives is the sin of adultery. It is a serious mistake to believe that it is simply one's right to divorce the spouse and take another. Even though human law may permit such a thing, God strictly forbids it, and it cannot and will not honor it. Anyone who follows human customs and laws regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage instead of God's divine instructions should stand in fearful awe of God himself. All lawmakers in and out of the church are warned to their peril to hear and obey the word of the Lord and regard his commands on marriage and divorce. Christians are to stop making excuses and trying to find justification for divorce and remarriage. There are no valid reasons acceptable to God. A marriage is for life, no matter what a spouse turns out to be or how they may act, what they do or don't do, or the sins they commit. The covenant remains fully in effect. A remarriage while a former spouse lives is not a marriage at all, but sinful adultery. God does not divide the one flesh relationship except by physical death. Marriage is a lifelong covenant that will never be invalidated by God while both parties live. I want to thank you for being attentive and for coming. Um, Cindy Van Order is going to pass out a version of this, much less detailed because a lot of this information is recent. If you will give me a week after this conference is over, you can go to www.marriagedivorce.com and you can click on a link that says the early teachings of the early church fathers and you will find every word that you saw up here on the screen today. A word about textual validity and about scholarly work. I have made it a very serious point of effort not to include any material that is spurious or of doubtful origin. There is a lot of Catholic false epistles that are out there that were false and wrong. None of them are here. You will find that there's other church fathers have taught on this, but taught the same way. Ignatius said that if whoever, Ignatius said, I think I can quote this from memory, I'm going to have to because it's not written down. He said, if in the Old Testament a man was put to death on, the, on, on, on uh, testimony of two witnesses, so much worse will be the fate of those that destroy marriages in the name of Christ. Anyone who destroys marriages, and he says anyone that destroys marriages and families will go into the eternal kingdom of the lost, and so will every single person that teaches this, and so will every single person that listens to them. So let's not play around with this. Let's go out and change the church around. Let's turn it. Let's turn it. Let's turn it. Let's save them from themselves if we can. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us today. Lord, we ask for your continued participation in this conference. 
And Lord, may this information be useful to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.